This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Moll from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Welcome, Andrew from Mortgage HQ. You know, actually, why I reached out to you, um, obviously, came across your content, but it was also because you had 198 Google reviews, yeah, <laughs> and a 4.9 star rating. Yeah. Can you? Well, before we get into that, like, is there? How do you do that? Like, how do you? Is it just you do a great job, or you say, "Hey, guys, if you um, go with us and give us a Google review, you get ten dollars off"? Or, well, we actually. I'm actually quite privileged that the amount of five-star re- reviews we have is actually only a small percentage of the clients that we've helped. We ask every client for a review, even if we feel like we're not going to get a five-star review. And not everyone does it. It's just part of our automated process. It's okay. like a week after settlement, you get an email. And I think what happens is um, we give a $50 restaurant voucher. And we say, hey, thanks you know, for choosing us and um, – if you don't mind, you know, uh, can you leave a review? We give the voucher regardless of review. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just like a small token to say, hey, look, this is a relationship that we expect to have and hope to have over the long term. You know, 50 bucks is not really that much. I mean, it's just no, you know, it's not, not many people that you give it to. You're just settling a deal. Give mm. them, you know, and it's, it's hopefully they'll take someone along and, um, you know, they talk about, no, their experience. <laughs> Smart. Yeah, it's it's yeah. rare and also a good feeling because there's, there's a few parts to that. One, they're going to talk about the good experience they had from you guys, so then maybe there's a new referral from that. Yeah. And then because you're giving them something at the point you ask, like Gary's jab, jab, right hook sort of yeah. mentality. Oh, we used to just say at the start of you know, prospective conversation and say, hey, look, if we do this for you and we do a good job, we just want two things. It's a free service. We'd like a five-star review at the end if we deserve it. And if you're feeling generous, I'll send you a link to the whiskey we like. And, you know, a lot of people were sending us whiskey for a while because quite a few of the guys were asking about the whiskey. And it kind of dropped off when we had a lot of whiskey because we, <laughs> we didn't need any more. But, um, Is it a side hustle now? You pass it on or you just stack it up and uh, give it to clients and they come? Or? I've seen a few guys uh, on LinkedIn quite a bit lately uh, doing the whole whiskey thing, but no, it's it's just trying to keep it fun, and when you ask for a review right at the beginning of the conversation, saying "Hey, I am going to ask for a review," just helps keep front of mind like you're trying to provide five star service, huh? and five star service often means like just telling it like it is. Like you don't have to always be the nicest or the fastest or the smartest, but like you got to be reliable and communicate. Um, you know. With no BS. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of people want to buy properties or get into investments that they just they can't afford or the bank's just not going to approve it the way that they're wanting to get it approved. And so those can be very frustrating conversations for people that have a dream and a plan and where 
the bearer of bad news. Yeah. But that doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. Like you go to the doctor and he tells you he has can you have cancer. It shouldn't be the end of the relationship with your doctor. It's yeah. bad it's bad news. And maybe even the doctor said, Hey, we looked a year ago, we didn't see it, and we've looked this year and we've seen it. And you're gonna be annoyed. But if you trust your doctor and then you keep going back. Hmm. So how do you how do you manage those two worlds? Obviously your business is built on writing mortgages, but sometimes you come across people where it's not right to write the mortgage for them, as you say they can't afford it or Yeah, so <clears throat> what happens in our company is like I was saying before, we get quite a bit of inquiry, like thousands of, of inquiries each year. And we we try to get in front of those conversations with the mortgage advisors and you know, typically it'll be me or, or one of the other guys will have a conversation. And basically we're trying to, because we've got some pretty awesome mortgage calculators on our website, there's a mortgage snapshot. So people will fill it in, might take a minute, and it will give them a bunch of answers about borrowing power, about whether it's worth restructuring or refinancing, whether they can buy another property, things like that. Mm. And that output comes to us as well, and that triggers follow-up. So if we feel like we can help and we you know, we feel like the, the prospective client is going to be receptive and they want to talk, then we'll reach out. And then it's just about conversation, five to ten minutes of what are your goals, what have you got planned, what, what challenges are, are going to arise, and what sort of time, you know, what sort of time frame are you working towards? And then if the timing is right and we feel like it's appropriate to keep going, that's when we trigger that that person to fill in a, an application and book a call with the advisor. So we're trying to limit the amount of conversations advisors have with people that firstly are not ready and secondly that they can't do what they want to do. Mm. And we're trying to point people to educational content and information that will help them achieve the goals they have you know a lot of people don't have financial goals (laughs) they just want to maybe pay down their mortgage and that's it they haven't thought about income and retirement they haven't and if people want to buy their first house sometimes they they don't really have a plan they don't really have a time frame they're just saying i'm you know they might have 50 grand in their kiwi saver and and 30 grand in savings but they just feel like they're locked out and they, they might not even try. So you know, a lot of people that can buy property don't want to. And a lot of people that own property and don't have an investment vehicle, they're either like scared or confused or anxious or there's something holding them back from, make, from making investment decisions. Mm. And so what happens is years and years go by where they just sit on their home equity, just pay down their mortgage. And a lot of people pay off their, their house and that triggers them to think, okay, now what am I going to do, mm. right? And and what we're trying to do as as mortgage advisors that are more focused on property investment, on building wealth and income through owning multiple properties is to say, don't wait. If you can buy a property now with your home equity or as a first-home buyer, why are you, why are you waiting? No, time in the market, as you know, is very important. And if, if you wait a year or two or three years, Let's say you're buying, um, use round numbers for easy maths, a million-dollar property. And on average, in the Auckland market, it's been 5% capital gains for the last 10 years. And you can project that out that hopefully maybe it'll be around at least 3% capital gains in Auckland for the next 10 years. So if you wait a year to buy a property, it's going to be 30 grand or more next year. And so if you've only got 80 grand of savings... 
you know, 30 grand e- extra to pay is a lot. You know, mm. why, why, why wait? And, and it's the same for people that have a lot of home equity. They might have a $500,000 mortgage and, you know, $1.2 million house. So they've got 700 grand of, of home equity. But if you're not investing that or treating it as an investment like launch pad, now you've got to think, okay, what am I going to do with my savings and my money when I pay off this mortgage? What is going to be my income generating asset? And, and you know, shares are great and shares that make up you know, a part of you know, a diligent you know, person's portfolio and you want to spread the risk a bit, um, you know, shares whether it's an index or individual stocks is, you know, for sure. But you can't leverage off it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all seen the volatility in, in, in the last 10 years and, and beyond. Like, I'm lucky I was born in 87, so I haven't seen the 87 crash. Yeah. Like we, we've seen a few little blips, you know, but the volatility and the lack of ability to just really generate a lot of income from your share portfolio unless you have a really big pie, like – you know, you're talking at least a mil, if not two, two or three million dollars, to generate enough decent income from from shares. So we're just trying to say, hey, if you've got a hundred grand of usable equity, you can leverage off that and use it to buy a five hundred thousand dollar property that's going to generate you income for life. Yes, there's going to be difficult decisions like what should I buy and where should I buy and how should I manage it and is this going to take up a lot of my time and and then you 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 manage those stresses you say i'm going to get help somebody can help me choose what to buy i'm going to get a property manager so i don't get calls that i don't know what to do Mm. and it's just about keeping an open mind that if i have no investment vehicle then how am i going to get money you know a freehold house is great but it doesn't pay you unless you rent out the rooms Mm. (laughs) Mm. That's a good call. I mean, we, we sort of go a different – well, we have clients that have rental property and we have clients that have managed funds um, as a means to fund that income. But you're right. The, the great benefit of profit is you're leveraging money you don't have and you can potentially leapfrog in a direction that's quite quite powerful. What what? How much – like a decent income, let's say 120 grand or whatever easy mass you can do in your head of like how much of a portfolio would you need to fund a, a decent income in retirement? Like of, of obviously property. Yeah, there's there's one client that has been working with us since 2016, and she is on a five figure income. Mm-hmm. So definitely under a hundred grand. She does a lot of overtime, and when she first came through, she just wanted to get a, a better deal on her existing mortgage. She just had one property, but now she has five properties, and so she, at the very beginning, couldn't have afford to buy an expensive investment property. I think her max was like two hundred fifty thousand. And it was really stretching it, and it had to be like a high yield property. So she ended up buying in Hastings for two hundred fifty thousand or thereabouts, and it was three hundred and twenty dollars a week rental income. And she just repeated that process, you know, three or four more times in the last five years. And because of capital gains, and because of selling one property and buying another duplex property, her portfolio is now worth two point eight million, and she has more than one point two million of equity. No, she, single income, less than a hundred grand. She just works really hard, listens to advice, and takes action. Um, so you don't you don't need the big income. 
You just need to make sure you understand the constraints of your situation. And if you can only buy a two or three hundred thousand dollar property, then it makes setting the filters on trade me and real estate much easier because there's going to be less to choose from. Mm. Uh, and you just got to be quick and 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 form the habit of of looking at listings and 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 you know, being involved until you get a transaction done. What well, what's your advice for, for that example? For example saying example a few times there, is the the change in legislation with the interest costs. You used to be able to offset it, so she's obviously done quite well to pay it off. Is is there things you're recommending for clients at the moment? Like are they doing interest only or yeah. are they selling off, but then you've got the bright line test? Like what, what are you? Yeah, for established investors, uh, those changes won't be as impactful as it would be for new investors. So the established investors, a lot of them would have been factoring in five to ten percent interest rates anyway, and yeah. now now we're down two percent, two and a half percent. So, and a lot of them have had these experienced investors capital gains of, you know, in the last ten years, property prices more than doubled for sure for most of them. So, the experienced and established investors have had a huge capital gain, and cash flow has gone through the roof because of their interest expense dropping so much. Got it. So established investors are just going to be fine. New investors definitely need to factor in the the lack of interest rate deductibility. You know, the interest cost deductibility is going to affect people to the tune of like three to five grand a year. You know, rents will go up to to cover that loss. And you can be sure of one thing is governments come and go. So even if Labor does rubber stamp this change, they may not. You know, it's just... Uh, an idea at the moment if they get another term and even if they get another term after that you know you can be sure that government will switch back eventually and whether it's act or national they might reverse those changes and in which case if you've been buying properties and wearing that burden of not having the duct- deductibility and it still works for you and then that gets lifted from you your cash flow might double overnight through a re- reversal of that change mm. And in that time, what has happened is property prices have gone up, rents have gone up to meet the extra expense for investors, you know, probably a bit more inflation than what has happened in the last couple of years. So if you've got debt with the inflation that's you know, projected to happen and you've been buying assets, when those rules reverse in 5 or 10 or 15 years' time, you're going to be in a really, really strong position. If you wait until the the rules change back say you're saying look with interest cost deductibility I'm I'm just not going to invest I'm going to wait till they change it back and then I will then you're going to miss out on 5 or 10 or 15 years of gains of income of surplus income that can be put on your own mortgage or into other investments like you know you look in America they got in the different states they got way more taxes than we do and in Australia they got duties and other taxes that we don't have so you just got to, okay, you can complain about it, but then get on with it. You know, it's it's okay, yeah, it's a couple grand that you're going to not get, but no, keep going. No, it's property is still such an obvious investment vehicle even without that. And if if not property, then what, right? Is if you're going to invest in businesses, great. What businesses are you going to invest in? Private companies that are local to you? that are going to pay you income, great. Get out there and do it. Maybe that's that's your investment vehicle. 
Are you going to invest in shares? Okay. What are you going to invest in? Are you going to use an advisor or do it yourself? But like we said before, you probably need to get to a mil or two mil invested in shares to get any real decent income or return that's reliable from it. Mm. So if you don't invest in property, there's not much else. And heaven forbid you'd be um, looking at cryptocurrencies or, <laughs> um, you know, you know, speculating, so to speak. If, if, if you do do that, it's not a surefire way. Now, property to me and to our clients is, is, is one of the only surefire ways to get leverage and get returns over the long term. Yeah, the, the leverage is the, the main point of difference. Like, um, for example, managed fund, you get between 5 and 7%. Yeah. Um, so match is similar to the capital growth of what you might get with the mm. um, the property, but obviously you're making gains on um, money that you don't have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and, one of and my, a rental income as well. One of my friends bought a property off the plans a year or two ago for 1.1 mil, saw a good deal, and he's decided that he wants to move and he's selling it for 1.6 so you know he probably put ten percent down, hundred and ten thousand, and that's turned into six hundred thousand of cash with no tax. Now that's an owner occupied yeah. tactic, but you can invest by changing owner occupied properties. Now there's a lot of people that buy a family home, renovate it, and when that property has served its purpose and you decide it's time to move again, you can get a, a big gain like that, um, and. You know, maybe adding buying a property and adding a minor dwelling or adding a bedroom is going to give you the income for life that you're really looking for. Now, I don't think it's shares or property. I think it's shares and property. Um, you just need to make sure that you assess the order and where to allocate capital first and, and to what proportions so that you can get your capital base up. Hmm. Now, property is a really good way if you're intelligent about it to get your capital base up and if you get a million dollars of cap of cash then by all means chuck it in a, a managed fund or in, into some shares and and watch it compound and don't touch it but only when you don't need it well yeah the, the you can you can have a managed fund and use it like on, ongoing like if you're going to sit and uh, leave it then obviously you can go more aggressive less more volatility and it'll compound over time well the um, what yield do you think is a fair representation of what you could get? So, you've got this person; they're trying to get one hundred twenty thousand income. Do they need two million dollars worth of property? Three, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, if if you want to get eighty thousand passive, then you really need to get you no know, well over two mil of property, maybe even up to three mil. Okay. And and obviously that means debt. Yeah. So that's what catches people is they get nervous about getting into debt. And so they might have 500k mortgage, and they see that creating 80 to 100,000 of passive income is going to require them to take on like another two mil of of mortgage debt, and that sounds like astronomical. It's like you know that that can be scary, and that's where spreadsheets are really important. You can show that everything's cash flow positive, and if it's not, then it's not not missing by much. If you're being very conservative about how many weeks you're going to not have tenants and things like that. You know, some some property investment advisors will be very generous with their capital gains <laughs> calculations. Mm. You know, I've heard of some, and I use the, the you know, bunny ears, advisors 
using 7% capital gains on their spreadsheets, which I think is pretty dangerous. Mm. Um, but even if you factor you know, 1% to 3% capital gains, which is a lot less than what has been happening, and you can cash flow positively through through that the next 10-year cycle, then the spreadsheets become incredibly helpful. And when you work with a mortgage advisor, that's how you're able to get the interest-only lending and you're able to get it for five years, not, not in all cases, but you know, that's generally the aim. And if if required and if accepted at the time by the bank, you know, you can reapply for interest only lending. You, know, you you don't need most people still think about mortgages as, as principal and interest. And principal and interest definitely you know, on your family home, you know, pay down the debt there. But when you've got 2.25% interest rates and you can borrow a million bucks for like 20 grand and generate 30, 40, 50 grand of income from that million dollars, um, you're silly to dismiss it quickly. You know, it's good to, good to think about why would this be a good idea? Can I even do it if I want to? And then if you can do it and you still think it's a good idea, then why are you not? Mm. Uh, I bought a property in Sandringham recently and it generates you know, well over a thousand bucks a week and you know, it's like 20, 30 grand of cash flow positive you know, when you're using interest only lending. Yeah, yeah. So all of the properties that you're looking at are cash flow positive if you don't pay too much. Mm. And that's the thing is like you don't have, if you see a property doesn't earn the return that you need or want, you don't have to buy that one at that price. You can find something in Hamilton or in Taranaki or, you know, you can find a property that yields at the, the level that you need and you can sacrifice a bit on the location side to make sure that you can sleep at night. We interrupt this message just to let you know that there's a free consultation. Anyone that listens to this podcast, there's a link at the bottom. Just click on it, reach out, and we'll see if we can add value. Just the only thing we ask, if you're paying off debt, that should be your number one focus. The two people we can help are either working towards a goal like saving for their first home or someone that's paid off debt and worried about retirement. So if you want a bit of guidance and a bit of help, reach out. Don't let money come between you and a better future. So you did the two million. It's like four percent, pretty much. Is that tax paid or and maintenance and insurance and? Yeah, yeah, after tax. Yeah. After tax, four. What do you think it costs to maintain a house? Like, like point five one. I'm just. I, I don't have these opportunities to have it. Yeah, people yeah. that specialize in it. And 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 that's where when you when you compare different property types, if you're going to buy a new build property and you get the the ten year, you know, master builder guarantee and. Um, one year they'll within one year they'll come back and fix things. Then obviously there's going to be less maintenance. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to meet the healthy home standards right off the bat. You might have to do your homework there. But buying a new build property means less deposit required. So you can, if you don't have the equity, mm. you can you can leverage a bit more, and it means less maintenance. However, if you buy a new build, generally speaking, you're not going to have the big land size. So what happens is a developer will come along, there'll be a big house on a big section, and they'll put 10 on it. And then they'll they'll sell those 10 as if it was one on that big section. So you might be paying a million dollars and only getting a tenth of that section size that you would have beforehand. Yes, you get a brand new house, but the cost may not be obvious at the, at, at, at the beginning because 
cap, capital gains is generally on the land size. So I think you've got to be careful just looking at new builds thinking this is so easy and this is so great. Hmm. You've got to factor in the fact that if you have a 1,000 square metres in Auckland with a big old house, the capital gains is probably going to be a lot better than if you have 150 square metres in Auckland and a brand new house. Now, it might take a while for that um, that impact to become obvious, but I've definitely got that bias in my mind now of thinking, okay. you know, it's great to have a low-maintenance property, but at what cost? Mm. Um, and, and these kind of nuanced factors is is what you'll talk about with, with your mortgage advisor. Now, when you go to to get advice from someone that's saying to buy a new build property, you've got to understand how they're being remunerated. And when you work with a mortgage advisor that's not remunerated on what you buy, they're only remunerated on what you borrow, you also got to factor in, you know, am I asking the barber if I need a haircut? You know, that, that famous quip. You just got to make sure that you have the knowledge in your own head enough that you're not going to get duped into doing something silly. Because it's very easy as a professional, mortgage advisor, investment advisor, real estate advisor, to become so biased by what you're selling that you think it's so great that yeah, you, yeah. you miss the flaws of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's why you're on here, mate. Yeah. Try not to get biased. And, and so... For anyone that is thinking about property investment, I just just say read read widely, you know, listen to the podcasts and watch the videos, and you've got to be able to argue for and against every idea that you have. You no, know, you've got to be able to say new build is such a great idea. Here's all the reasons. New build is a terrible idea. Here's all the reasons. Should I buy an existing property and renovate it, add a bedroom, you know, tidy up the kitchen? That's a great idea. Here's all the reasons, and vice versa here's all the reasons why i shouldn't do it and once you feel comfortable assessing the numbers and talking about those kinds of things then you get an advantage over other investors who are just like what i'm seeing a lot of which does worry me is 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 investors treating property buying like e-commerce like need to buy a property click bought a property sweet don't have to worry about it anymore Mm. like odds are some of those people are going to regret that doing it that way especially if you never, ever go to that property. <laughs> you know, people in Auckland buying something on the outskirts of Christchurch or Cambridge or Hastings or whatever, like, you've never been there. Are you trusting the word of someone that's going to make a lot of money selling you this? you just got to be careful. Mm. So you look at intent, motivation, and you prepare yourself with knowledge. Where, yeah. How do you um, upskill? Where can people go to learn? Obviously, you've got your mortgage calculator. You create content. Is yeah. there someone else that you learn from or? Yeah, we, we obviously got a lot on our YouTube. It's just youtube.com slash mortgagehq. Got like 100 videos up there. Uh, Bigger Pockets is a American website, biggerpockets.com, and they've got a, you know, definitely the most successful property podcast. Is it relevant still? Or? Ex- extremely relevant. Okay. So obviously it's Americanized, yeah, yeah. but the tactics and the understanding of pitfalls is, is really awesome. Like the guy, Brandon Turner, that runs it, he's got like th- – 2,000 units and they're very much giving a lot of knowledge away for free that is definitely not going to hurt. Mm. So I try to like, you know, encourage all of the team definitely is don't listen to music in the car. <laughs> don't listen to music at the gym if you can handle it. You know? mm. There's so much 
free content that you're never ever ever going to get through all of the free content yeah. like it, you almost don't need to pay for advice until you're like really ready yeah if you haven't done the work to learn no the the point that i wrote down here is like a financial six, six pack like if you see somebody that's in in really good shape like most of the time it's not an accident yeah like it's diet it's habits on going to the gym it's research on on what sort of workouts and and techniques it's the same with investing like the people that have done really well in investing generally it's not it's not a mistake it's because they've done the research they've got habits of looking at different types of investments their friends are investors so if you if you're not in that friends circle about you know talking about money and talking about property then you need to find people to talk about it with you know one of the you know, the th- the points I wanted to talk about today was avoiding silly mistakes like buying property relatively speaking is pretty easy buying buying shares especially with sharesies and hatch and all those programs now it's like it's pretty easy to spend your money and invest your money these days but what catches a lot of people out is is making real silly mistakes and you know I was just listening in the office today like one one of the clients was talking about selling a property they got a lot of debt and that debt is cross-secured between their portfolio. Mm. They they wanted to sell one of their properties to free up some cash. The trouble is if they sell that property, the bank is going to ask for all of the proceeds of the sale. And the client didn't really understand that. So if that person didn't talk to one of our advisors, they would have sold their $1.5 million property thinking they were going to get, say, a million dollars of cash, but the bank would have taken all the money. And so what ends up happening is they would have had one less property and way less debt, which is not what they wanted. Mm. They want to keep the debt. They want to keep growing their portfolio. And so if you have cross-secured properties and you're not getting advice before hitting that sell button, that's a big mistake because you won't be able to borrow that money again. And like another really big mistake is getting advice from non-experts. So if you ask a real estate agent or you ask a lawyer or you ask... Now, even if you ask an accountant for an investment advice, by all means, listen, but just be careful because they they all got their own agenda. They might not necessarily actually know what they're talking about, even if they have confidence when they say it. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't ask the barista for a haircut. They might have really good insights about what hairstyle I should get, but no, go to the the barber when I need a haircut. Mm. And so what what happens is a lot of people get advice from family or from friends or from real estate agents about investing or about selling and it's 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 well mean but it's not good advice um and and that's just what we we're just really trying to help people not make silly decisions well on that no like obviously the financial six-pack like it's a good analogy we also had um a guest on before you'd say um don't go to advice get advice from someone you wouldn't normally go to Mm. Not in the sense of like don't go to an expert, but more in the sense of go to someone that you would expect to get the right advice from. Yeah. But I'd be curious, like, so, you know, there's be a mixed bag. Some people are like, okay, why don't I just go to the bank? Like, what, why would I go to a mortgage? Like, what, what is, what can a mortgage broker actually do? Like, what, what's yeah. the things you can pivot and utilize? And well, what, what's not commonly known is is there's quite a bit of variation between what the banks can do. Okay. So if you go to your existing bank and you want to buy a property, they might say, yep, you can you can buy a $600,000 property. What they won't tell you is if you walk across the road to the different bank, they might give you a million dollars. 
which is very important, mm. <laughs> um, especially because you're setting your budget. Now, the people that work in the banks, they're not really allowed to give you advice about you know, properties and about mortgage structure and things like that. doesn't mean they won't. <laughs> they're not really supposed to. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just got to accept that banks are really, really awesome at lending money. They're good at looking after money. They're good with credit cards. They're really good at a lot of things that they do. The odds are the person you're talking to is is not going to be the person you're talking to in two or three years' time. And they're really good people that work at the bank. They get promoted or they go out on their own. So if you want consistency working with the same people, you no know, mortgage advisor is a good choice there. If you actually want to get advice, mortgage advisors actually give advice, whereas bankers generally don't. Okay. They'll, they'll be able to tell you about what rates are on offer and they might quietly give you insight on what they think is one year or two year or three years best but they're definitely not going to tell you about tax and ownership structures they're not going to tell you about walk across the road and you get a better offer they're not going to tell you the hacks that mortgage advisors commonly know about if you put this property at that bank and this property at that bank that means you can borrow this much you know split banking is a is a hot topic in the mortgage space at the moment because of the rule changes around uh, the interest deductibility and potential rule train cha- rule changes about debt to income ratios and about interest only lending. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you want to work with someone that works in the branch or that you know handles a hundred inquiries a week but just works at the bank and not remunerated in any which way to focus on your deal over anyone else's? Or do you want to work with like a highly experienced mortgage advisor that specifically focuses on property investment and only gets paid on success. It's like kind of a no-brainer. There is a caveat to that, obviously with your competitors, not necessarily saying you, but how do you – so most models I see in the mortgages, it's free. So yep. there's an underlying trail or commission. Or, like how do, you, how do you know that they're not necessarily just recommending the one that they get the best price from? Yep, yep. So you, if a mortgage advisor is suggesting that you switch banks or that you, spe- you know, specifically use – a lender, if you don't trust their advice, then you've got to question why you're working with them. The mortgage advisor, their duty is to explain to you why this specific lender. And I don't, I can't really talk about the other mortgage advisors because I never worked there and I never done it. No, a lot of mortgage advisors are, you know, mortgage brokers are commission only. And so if they are commission only, then you've got to think, okay, you know, is the commission influencing their advice? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Now, our firm is, is salaries and no bonus, bonus based on performance. Once you take the money off the table, you really, really, really can't focus on the advice. And that once you create enough inquiry, you don't have to worry about whether you get paid on that deal or not. So that's what we've tried to do is to pay salaries and provide enough inquiry that the advisors don't have to think about money that much. Okay. They can just really focus on on giving good advice and good service. You know, the the new legislation means that you know, advisors do have to demonstrate to clients how they're getting paid and, and how much and you know it's it's not it's not a secret. And banks are very, very happy to pay commissions because we as brokers save the bank a lot of time and hassle filtering clients, mm. you know, and, and processing things for them. Can you see that model changing? You know, like in Australia, um, the advisors, they, they, um, 
they're, they're snapping that out in a sense. You know, there was instances where people were paying and they weren't alive anymore. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah. that was the level of advice they were getting. Yeah, and when you when you read those stories, it's actually quite often the banks are the ones getting in trouble. Yeah, and the issues with you know hundred million fine here, you no know, five hundred million dollar fine there. You know, it's usually you no know, one of the banks. You know, so you reckon they they're actually wanting to outsource it out of fear? Is that what you're saying? Or? Well, I've seen the banks are exiting out of financial advice. Yeah, they are. Yeah. You know, it's quite a high risk. To be a financial advisor, the way I kind of jokingly explain it to my friends and you know, anyone that will listen, basically, is if a doctor makes a mistake, the doctor's going to be practicing next day. Like, people understand that human error comes into it, doctors make mistakes. But if a financial advisor makes a mistake, it can mean the end of their career. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of compliance and a lot of regulation in place to control who can be- become and stay an advisor, you know, criminal checks, uh, compliance audits, and that's not even including the banks basically having, you know, open season if they want to look under the hood of anything they can. So you just have to trust that if you're working with an advisory firm that's been established, that generally speaking, they're going to be very compliant and very focused on doing the right thing because at any time, if they don't, they're getting a lot of trouble. They can lose their firm. Mm, yeah. So there, there obviously will be some bad actors, but you know, if you go to, you know, an appliance store and you want to buy a fridge, and the the person there says, "Oh, you should buy Fisher and Paykel," you know, that might mean because they're getting remunerated, they're getting a an incentive bonus to sell Fisher and Paykel that month. Yeah. Right. And there's incentives in every industry, whether you realize it or not. If you are not paying for the advice and you're getting advice, then you are the product. Yeah, you just have to trust who you're working with, and that's why the reviews, you know, are so important. That's why giving away tons and tons and tons of education is important. If people don't come to us, it's not a big deal, but when they do come to us, they're already like, okay, these guys, they know what they're talking about. I feel like I can trust them, and if anything goes wrong, there's a complaints process. There's, there's you know, um, industry bodies set up where you can complain. Yeah, ombudsman, financial yeah, services. Yeah, ombudsman. and there's financial services, complaints limited. There's all sorts. Most of the time, if there's complaints, it will come to me or you know, my GM. doesn't happen very often at all. Now, generally speaking, we just assess the confusion or the frustration or the fault. And if we made a mistake, remedy it. Is it harder to get – like so the listeners, they might not know, there's a legislative change. There used to be a concept called registered financial advisors. So yeah. when I did insurance, you just tick a box, pay some money, and now you're an advisor. Yeah. So that's changed. Is that harder in the mortgage space because there's a higher level of competency and bar for you to recruit? Yeah, look, we have a recruitment model where we get you know, young people that have got university degrees, basically. It doesn't mean they necessarily have to have done finance. And they, they intern or they start with us at – the customer service level in our mm. firm and they just progress from servicing to settlements to advisory and through the course of you know a year or two years or how long it takes them they they get the required training and papers done oh you got it and and you no know, they get given books they get given courses they learn through osmosis you know being in the room you know, that's a very different approach than if you take somebody you no know, used to i used to joke and say hey look one day uber driver next day mortgage advisor yeah 
right? And that that's how it used to be. And a lot of the advisors that are still in the industry, the formal training might not actually be, no, very high. Um, and, you know, the gray hairs might disguise the fact that they don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and, and the mortgage and insurance industries tend to attract people that they can talk very confidently about, about things. Even when it's wrong, when they talk about it, it sounds right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's the danger even for, for guys like us is if we're confident about the advice or about the methods that we're talking about is to just hold in the back of your mind, okay, if you are wrong, then you know, what can you do to mitigate that? What can you do to, to take the other side, present that as, a, as an idea, and just make sure to test your assumptions on whether this is actually a good good investment strategy or not. Oh, fair. No, but you no, know, we can't we can't make the investments for for people. You know, we can't. We don't say buy this. We say you can buy a, a million dollar property. Here's a few um, filters that might be effective for you on real estate or trade me. But you got to find it because we don't want to influence your investment decision. We don't want to for you to feel like. We're we're pushing you one direction or the other, um, and that's you no. Know, when you go to a firm that specifically sells property, it's very different. You've got to be careful that you're not buying a lemon because that person is really persuasive mm. about that particular property. Never trust anyone out of breath. Well, now, as we, as we wrap this up, I think it would be um, some tactical takeaways. You know, like I mean. People have talked about leveraging revolving credit or should they have 75% in fixed and 25% in floating and it varies depending on each person. But yeah. is there some concepts around debt that you can structure in such a way and yeah. it's be quite useful? Yeah, you really <clears> – excuse me. You should look at revolving credit if you don't already have it and you just go onto the bank website that you're with and look up revolving credit and just watch the flash video they have and you'll you'll probably learn a bit. If you've got debts that are more than your mortgage, it, it probably does make sense to debt consolidate if you are not you know, on top of them. And by on top of them, I mean like paying them off in the next couple of months. So Gen Visa, Q-Card, um, car loans, Harmony loans, things like that, consolidating them into the mortgage and over the next sort of three to five year period, it will probably make more sense to do it like that. Even if you're putting it on a longer term, just because of the low interest rate, if you take that money you'll be putting into your debts and put it into your mortgage, then it's going to probably work out in your favor. And 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 you just got to assess if you if you are building up equity and you're paying your mortgage off faster than you need to, you got to ask why. You no, know, why are you contributing more to your mortgage than you need to when you could be buying more properties? And that's rental, as you say. Like yeah. if you're living in it, principal and interest makes sense. But if you got a rental property. And yeah. you leverage, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and just don't don't hold in your mind that negative feeling or idea that property investment doesn't make sense because there's no returns. Let the numbers show you that there, there is returns. Even if the market falls, it's very unlikely that rental amounts would go down with the market. So if there's a period where there's flatness in the market and you know, property prices drop 5 or 10% and that, that holds for five years, it's not going to... It's not going to impact you as long as you're a patient investor and the cash flow is positive. Okay. So consolidate, look up revolving credit, and um, obviously do the numbers. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Let the numbers do the talking. 
conservative number. Seven is high. Five <laughs> yes. is good. Well, even if you're using 3%. Three. Yeah. Low is better. Yeah. Same with us. We'd rather, because in the planning process, we'd rather have it too small than too big because, you know, it's a 20, 30-year process, so you might as well underpl- underpin it. And if you're investing and you're seeing things that other people aren't seeing, like land banking opportunities or opportunities to do renovations, you know, you're, you're spotting equity growth and instant equity that maybe other people are not noticing. And and it's not a fair system in that first home buyers have to put down ten to twenty percent deposit and they have to go principal and interest. If for family home, basically it's principal and interest. Which means it costs more to be a first home buyer than it does to be a property investor. Property investor can hundred percent finance an investment and they pay interest only, which means it's way cheaper for the investor to own that property than the family which gives you an advantage. I'm not saying it's a fair system, but you, you have to look for arbitrage, you know, those opportunities in the market. And if you can buy you know, a property, add a bit of value, create equity for yourself, then that is, you know, it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing to make money. You know, you can give the money away if you, if you want. It's a bad thing to not have investment vehicles. Fair. What, what's your vision of financial freedom though? If you're talking to other people, what, what would be it for you? Yeah, interesting you say that. I was just writing some stuff about this. So I see financial freedom as, as three stages. see financial independence where you don't rely on anyone else and you know, you're comfortable that your expenses is less than your income. Then I see financial security where you've got like legitimate surplus income you can stop working for three to six months, maybe even 12 months because you've got equity or savings enough that it's not going to stress you out. And you probably have like more than one property. You definitely, definitely have investment vehicles when you get to that um, financial security. But then I think the next stage is financial abundance where there's just so much money flowing in that you're not worried about money, contributing to charities, church, community, whatever you want. You are able to impact where you want impact and you're able to help friends and family with money and you've just legitimately got no money worries. And if you aim for financial abundance, which you know might mean 500K of surplus income a year and you only hit financial security where maybe it's like 50 grand of passive income from, from your portfolio of shares and, and property, that's all good. But if you if you don't aim high and then you fall quite short, then that that's the danger. Um, you know, with that, that first example I talked about where she started with no investment properties in 2016 and now she has five, she has 28000 of passive income from her portfolio. 28000 is it that much? Well, when you're only making like, say, eighty grand a year, 28000 is a lot of money, mm. a lot of extra money for life, right, for life. And every year her property values are going to go up. Her debt through inflation or through paying off principal is going to go down. So she has for five years worked really hard. And for the next 50 years, if she makes it that, that long, she's going to reap the benefits. And and that's that's what we're just trying to help people with. You know, financial freedom is is definitely attainable, but only if you focus. Yeah, okay, fair. Well, on that note, how, how does everyone find you with all these uh, good points you're making? Uh, just mhq.co.nz. Um, 
there's no cost, no obligation for app review or, or to fill in the snapshot. So we got at the moment seven, probably have ten advisors by the end of the year, and every week they have to do at least ten reviews. So what that means is a lot of people get the opportunity to get insights about their position and their options without having to make any commitment or feeling like you know they're being harassed. You know, it's just a quick phone call or a quick video call, and um, you no know, odds are you're going to get shown a lot of things that you haven't seen before. Okay, fair. All right, well, thanks for coming along, and um, thank you for the sultry tones that are edited by nzaudioeditors.com. Just give them a shout-out every time. It's good. Um, and, yeah, thanks for coming, mate. It's good.